Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Esther Mobley, wine critic for San Francisco Chronicle. Esther, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. I was wondering if you could give us a little brief background about you and your journey in wine and wine writing. So it began when I came to Napa to work a harvest right after college. It was initially just meant to be a lark, something to kind of do for fun until I figured out what I was actually going to do with my life. But one thing led to another. It led to a harvest internship in Argentina after that, and then worked in restaurants, worked in wine shops. Eventually, I got an internship at Wine Enthusiast Magazine and then got a job at Wine Spectator magazine in New York. So by that point, I was hooked on wine. I loved wine. And I was just trying to work my way up in the world of writing about wine. And was writing always a critical thing in your life? Is that what you went to school for? I was an English major, and I always wanted to be a writer, but probably in the way that like a guitar player always wants to be a musician, I I didn't assume I would be able to make a living doing it. So I was, I I expected it to be a kind of side hobby for me throughout my life, but I was really thrilled when I figured out that I could kind of combine this pursuit I'd fallen in love with in my early adult life with this lifelong passion of mine. So I, I feel very, very lucky. And did being a sommelier and working production, do you think that gave you the background to help you become a better writer? Completely. Well, it's it's certainly, I could never have gotten that internship at Wine Enthusiast, I'm sure, without having had some experience working in with wine in those various settings. And yeah, I, I, I'm sure it probably did make me a better writer too. I mean, I think learning about wine puts you in tune with a whole different dimension of senses and Taste and smell are things that I, I actually think a lot of writers probably don't think about in as deep a way as learning the discipline of wine forces you to. So I, to some extent, I think the key to being a great writer is just being a great observer and being perceptive. And I really do believe that wine hones that skill. And as the wine critic for The Chronicle, You're both a journalist and a wine critic, so slightly different roles. How do you define and differentiate between those two roles? I have a pretty unusual role uh, within the Chronicle. Most of the critics at the Chronicle, you know, the restaurant critic has weekly restaurant reviews. The movie critic has weekly movie reviews. And, you know, my work as a critic, there's always been a little more nebulous. I definitely am a news reporter in addition to a critic. And those are two completely different hats that I wear. I cover the wine industry through the kind of skill set of a traditional reporter. And to that extent, I I think I'm no different from any other beat reporter at the Chronicle, just like yeah. someone's covering the school system and someone's covering the Golden State Warriors. I'm covering the 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 local, the regional wine industry, which is a hugely important part of our 
regions, economy, and culture. And then sometimes I'm also a critic and I'm looking at wines with a more evaluative lens and I'm writing about issues with a more critical eye, a more opinion-based kind of approach. And sometimes I get to kind of combine the two, which is, you know, you have to kind of figure it out because not all types of reporting welcome opinion. So I'm I'm curious, uh, because you had mentioned the other critics for restaurants and, and movies, it does seem there's a lot more critique and uh, and negative connotations with restaurants and movies in general. Um, again, I haven't recently gone through the the Chronicles uh, movie and restaurant reviews, but it, like they, they just seem they seem to be a little bit more pointed than than wine industry has gotten to that point. How do you feel about that? Like, is it important for you to like take a clear line stance of how you feel about this wine? Basically, how you how well how good it is, and do you factor in money into that? Or well, I don't do so. You know, I'm not scoring wines, yeah. and certainly some wine critics, their primary kind of medium of review is a tasting note and a score. I'm not doing that. I do write kind of reviews of individual wines, but they tend to be a little more narrative. I've been doing a column for a while, for the last year called Wine of the Week, where I I just kind of focus on one bottle. I definitely wouldn't go out of my way to write an entire article in that case about a wine I didn't recommend. But I just think that's what that particular exercise wants. I think it's important for me, as it, you know, both wearing the reporter hat and the critic hat to hold people to account, to call people out when they're charging a lot of money for something that I don't think is worth it, to kind of interrogate some of the thorny issues about how wine is made, how the wine industry works. And so I think there are ways to do that in a lot of a lot of different forms, a lot of different storytelling techniques. I definitely try to do that. And, but I, you know, I would say I'm, I'm always going to be more interested in the kind of more nebulous side of things than in saying whether this wine is bad or good. I did used to have a column where I would review bars and drinking establishments. I had that for about four years at the Chronicle. It was called Drink Up. And I did have have negative reviews in that column. I wrote one particularly scathing one about Bar Crenn, which is the wine bar opened by Atelier Crenn, the chef Dominique Crenn in San Francisco. And um, anyway, not that it gives me pleasure to, to, to heap negative criticism on anyone in particular, but there are some interesting, I think, writing opportunities that come out of talking about why something maybe doesn't meet one's expectations. And so I embraced that when, when it was appropriate. Interesting. Is there a negative bathroom score for that <laughs> column? <laughs> no, 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 not for that one. <laughs> so the role as a newspaper wine writer has been in decline for some time. There aren't as many uh, with anymore as there are, as there used to be. And so I'm curious on why you think that is. It's definitely true. There are not as many as there used to be. I think Eric Asimov at the New York Times and I may be the only full-time newspaper wine columnists who aren't contractors or freelancers. I could be wrong about that. Yeah. And I, I guess most people would probably read that as a symptom of the overall decline of newspapers and the difficulty of their business models. I actually think that's not the entire story. 
and by the way, the, the Chronicle Against All Odds is actually profitable and we're hiring a lot of people and I feel confident in what we're doing and I hope people who believe in newspapers will take some solace in that. What I actually think has happened in a lot of places is local newspapers have really shifted. There's, you know, I think in a previous era, every maybe not every, but a lot of kind of local regional newspapers that didn't serve a more national audience might've had their own wine columnist as kind of one of a larger roster of other more evergreeny, non-newsy lifestyle columnists. I mean, I think it's pretty analogous to like recipe coverage in newspapers. Think about how so many newspapers used to have recipe coverage. I mean, the Chronicle used to have a very robust test kitchen too. Now for various reasons, if you're not investing a lot into making a super robust recipe database online. It's it's probably not worth it for you as a newspaper to do that. So I think no one now would go to their local newspaper to learn the ABCs of wine or to ask, you know, what vintages of Bordeaux they should be buying. That that information is just not the domain of a of a newspaper anymore or of a local newspaper. So I think the way that newspaper wine writers have to be relevant today and to the extent they can justify their existence as having a job <laughs> is that we evolve into a different type of writer. We're not just like giving you Thanksgiving wine pairing recommendations, although I think that's still an important part of the job. But I mean, in my case at the Chronicle, I'm providing local news and a, a kind of local a view on something that is important to our the place where we live. So I think there may not be, it may not be that every newspaper in America needs that. I mean, we're the paper of record for the area that includes the most important wine regions in the Western hemisphere. So I think we, the Chronicle should always have a wine writer. Maybe it should have more than one wine writer, but you know, I, it doesn't, it doesn't, pain me that some newspapers where wine is maybe not as as much a part of their local life and the fabric of the place where they live, I don't take that as some kind of um, failure that those newspapers no longer invest in having a full-time wine person. And is that how you would differentiate the newspaper wine writer, especially like at the Chronicle where we're so close to the uh, to the uh, to Napa Valley and Sonoma versus a you know a wine magazine publication like Decanter or Wine Spectator or Wine Enthusiast that it's you're kind of giving that local coverage perspective or is there something more than that that you think differentiates them? It's interesting. I think the differences are are getting smaller. Actually, I mean we're now all working primarily in the same medium, which is online. It definitely used to be that maybe what distinguished the most was the publishing pace, right? I mean, publishing a magazine once a month or a few times a year versus a daily newspaper kind of demands a a very different sort of coverage. I mean, those, you know, decanter, wine spectator, wine enthusiast, one major difference between them and me is the scores and they score wines. I don't, I'm not doing the kind of tasting note churn um, like they are. I guess I would like to think I focus more on news than they do, but that's becoming less true. I mean, I'm constantly competing with Wine Spectator for scoops and they certainly cover news. And they all want exclusives. We all want exclusives. <laughs> we all want exclusives. Wine Spectator does a very good job of getting those exclusives and Shanker News Daily does. It's um, trade 
trade thing. I mean, look, I hope, I believe, I, I know, I have a much more robust news reporting infrastructure supporting me. I mean, I have hundreds of other journalists and news editors and staff photographers that that help me create my stories. But yeah, I mean, I, I think nowadays the the kind of things that maybe made such a big difference between daily publications like a San Francisco Chronicle versus a lifestyle magazine, I think the changes are are narrowing. I was wondering in the with only you and Eric Asimov and the focus on the local, wouldn't something like the Napa Valley Register or like Sonoma Press Democrats should I don't know that they have a wine critic, but it seems strange that they don't do that. Yeah, certainly the Napa Valley Register and the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, the big newspapers in Napa and Sonoma counties, they do do a lot of wine coverage and they do a, they do a great job of reporting the news, especially on a hyper-local level. The Register does have a lot of columnists like Dan Berger and Eduardo Dingler. They have a lot of columnists who often are doing some form of wine recommendations, I don't know if, I don't think they're full-time. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't think the Napa Valley Register puts forward one person as this is our wine critic. This is the kind of voice. I did see the Napa Valley Register hired a new wine industry focused reporter, someone from Minnesota this week. So I should reach out to her actually. I'm excited to have someone else covering it locally. I always think that's cool. Anytime anyone gets a job as a wine writer, I rejoice. I'm like, wow, this is a viable <laughs> profession. <laughs> we'll feel as alone in the woods. I feel vindicated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I am curious around the differences between a wine magazine and a newspaper in terms of, obviously you mentioned that like, the Chronicle was profitable. I'm curious on how like ad spending is different between those things? Like, or, or is ad spending going to help? Is it a little bit more focused maybe for a, for a wine magazine where with a newspaper, it's not just wine people that are going to see it, but then on the website, like I, I don't really read the Chronicle outside of your stuff. I kind of, I go to the Chronicle to check out what you're writing, especially last year during all the crazy fires. I was, uh, I was definitely tuning in every day to see what was happening. And I'm curious and like, does the Chronicle then target ad spending by different sections because they're doing they're doing online ad spends as well? Is that something that you you're measured against as a, as a person who owns a section of the paper? So I really don't know, and I part of my job is is to stay out of those things. I don't want to know. Sometimes I know that it's targeted as complex economics, and it's it's changing a lot. So I won't speculate. What I what I can say. The Chronicle's business model, and and this is where it does trickle down to us, the where we we're being asked to help. We're very clearly focused on subscribers and subscriptions. We would rather have fewer people read a story, but those be more meaningful views. Those be people who are likely to be loyal readers of the Chronicle for a longer time, and loyal subscribers. I think that's great because I think it incentivizes us to produce better journalism. We're being incentivized to produce the types of stories that will keep people engaged with us and will keep people wanting to support us rather than just putting out something that's a big SEO grab. And like the the ways that we as reporters are asked to kind of, you know, take responsibility for our own analytics, like there's less of an emphasis placed on pure page views than there is on did you write a story that someone read and then immediately subscribed right afterward? And are subscribers reading your story, not just like random people in New York who are never going to be interested in the Chronicle? 
part of that means we're really, we're really like, we're not really trying to be a national publication. I don't know if the editor would get mad at me for saying that. (laughs) I don't think we are trying to be a national publication. I think we're trying to do the best we can to tell the story of the Bay Area and Northern California. And um, I happen to think that a lot of people should care about what the story is of the Bay Area and Northern California, whether you care about wine or technology or politics. I mean, I think we are such an exciting, dynamic place where a lot is happening. But that that's really where we focus our energy and I think where the the long-term success of the business will lie. That's that's really interesting uh, with the, that business model focus. It definitely drives a different behavior and different set of writing. We, we'd love to hear your thoughts on, as a wine critic, the evolution of that wine critic and wine writing landscape Things have changed a lot, even over the last few years with Parker retiring and a lot of people going independent and then now social media and consumer aggregated or user generated content like Seller Tracker, Vivino, things like that, or wine blogs. How do you see that whole landscape changing? It definitely is changing a lot. It's hard to keep up with. I mean, I think the, to me, the headline is it's great. More voices is great. I love the kind of sense of democratization. Uh, you know, the barrier to entry is so much lower than it used to be. Anyone can start a website. And we definitely, you know, I'm interested to see what other kind of acolytes of the big publications start their own personally branded operation. I, you know, and I imagine too, like, I think a lot of the conversation is focused on like who's going to be the next Parker and I'm certain there will never be a next Parker. And I imagine that success for some of these kind of independent wine scoring outlets that are really driven by a single person, I suspect that like they, they can have a niche, they can have a niche audience. They don't need to have the entire wine drinking world with them. I mean, the main thing I think is that it was not healthy for the wine industry to have one critic with such outsized influence for so long. That is not a knock to Parker. I actually think Robert Parker was amazing in a lot of ways. I've written about it and I feel indebted to him as I think every wine writer ought to. But I think if it feels like a lot of wine writers suddenly, it's just because there were so few for so long and that needed to change. So how do you see you and the Chronicle playing in this new landscape? Well, I think, you know, to me, maybe the niche thing that I just mentioned applies to me. I mean, I write about California wine. I guess I occasionally write about wines that aren't from California. And to some extent, I've written in-depth stories about other West Coast wines, Oregon, Washington. But I think of myself as doing something pretty different from what those wine critics that fit the role of a more traditional wine critic do just because I, I really, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to keep saying this and it probably sounds corny, but I view myself as really telling the story of the Bay area through wine. And I think there's many ways to tell that story. But for me, I think it's a lot more fun than just sitting and tasting wines. Although I love doing that. And I don't, I don't think that's a dull or bankrupt, you know, creatively bankrupt enterprise at all. You know, to me, getting to write about climate change and social political issues and the kind of avant-garde side of, of you know, I, I get to write about wines that I'm interested in, even if I don't think they're the best wine I've ever tasted. 
if there's a great story there, I get to still tell it. I mean, it astounds me that some people, like on the natural wine question, for instance, some people feel like they either have to like be pro or against it. I don't feel like I have to be either pro or against it. I can write about it and chronicle it. And I think it is one of the most fascinating things happening in our world today. And it raises so many interesting questions about the nature of wine and what wine is and what wine should be. And um, I'm still shocked that people feel like there's no way to, to tell that story in a nuanced way without kind of editorializing it. Yeah, it's, it becomes almost like culty at a certain point. It's like I drink, I drink this Kool Aid, and I'm never going back. <laughs> or it's rubbish and it's it's bullshit. Or it, you can edit that out if you need to. And I'm just like, wow, you're not even you don't even want to engage with this. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. And so, you know, one of the articles I mentioned prior to us hitting the record was that in May you wrote this article about the rise of influencers during the pandemic, and that there is also an immediate backlash from the industry and a sexist backlash. And, and I'm curious on your take of the power of influencers, but also, you know, the, the changing landscape of the wine voice in, in all these digital platforms. Robert's bikini and speedo shots didn't do well, I guess. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, the influencer thing is so interesting. You know, look, as a traditional journalist, it always makes me a traditional journalist, maybe I'm not. I don't know. Whatever, what, however, I was schooled. It always makes me squirm a little bit when I see this kind of blurring of the line between sponsored content, non-sponsored content. Although, I really think like that is so not unique to influencers, podcast hosts, for instance. Now, it's calm. Everyone, I mean, reads the ads as well as doing the kind of more editorial stuff. You know that that's a, like a pretty groundbreaking concept for journalism in a lot of ways, everything's changing. I mean, I think influencers are, are kind of like this, this extreme example of what we maybe mentioned earlier, this democratization of voices. And I think some people feel like it's like become too democratic, maybe like anyone can do it. And the metrics by which you're rewarded are certainly different from what they were before. I mean, the your joke about the bikini shots. I think that's what makes some people so worked up about it because they don't think that that should be how, anyway, I don't know. People think a lot of things. We did a whole series on influencers on the podcast and and we talked to one person this way with Tate and she's a, a wine influencer and she's like, listen, whatever it gets them to, to, to like read my caption below because that's where my real thoughts on the wine are. And and, it, and she was really upfront about it. And I, and I respect that she's like, listen, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, get eyeballs to look at my stuff so they actually can pay attention and, and engage and read. And and she's got way better engagement than a lot of people do. And, and I think that's an interesting thing in terms of there's also, they all have like a different mix of people. They, they, they Someone like that would never have had an opportunity in the traditional landscape of media that was, uh, you know, either a wine magazine or, or um, they wouldn't have an opportunity in a wine magazine or, or a newspaper to be a critic like yourself. So I think it's interesting that these platforms let them build their own little tribe. What I don't understand is why the industry wants to basically poo-poo on all of that when they're not, when there's, there's no harm happening to it. Like I, I'm, I'm confused on what the collateral damage is of the wine influencer space. And that's what I liked about your article. Well, that's, Thank you. I, I agree completely. I mean, that's basically why I feel like most of the criticism that is being leveled against these influencers in the wine space is merely sexist 
and completely unfair and comes from a deeply sexist impulse. I mean, there's so many things I was thinking about while writing that piece. Like, it's not that any of these wine influencers individually came up with the idea to post attractive looking photos of themselves. Like, the internet is this crazy machine that drives and algorithms. I mean, like they're working within a system that they have to appease in order to get any success. And so, I mean, I was reading all these articles about the way that like our feeds are taken up, you know, you visit one thing on the internet and suddenly like all, all you see are swimsuit ads everywhere you go. And you're like, are they targeting me because they think I find the women attractive? Are they targeting me because they think I want to buy the swimsuits? I mean, it's like, anyway, those, the individual influencers are just trying to do the best they can to succeed in their medium. And they are totally like not in control of the, the system that, that they're working in. So, you know, I, I think a lot of the criticism that gets, kind of directed at them as individuals is misplaced in addition to being sexist. But the main thing I think is that wine is still so niche. It really is. And most people don't care about wine, even if they drink wine. And so the more people we can get excited about it, the more people we can engage with any type of content I view as a victory. I view as something that helps me. I am a terrible millennial. I'm really bad at social media. And so (laughs) I'm happy for other people to do the outreach that are better at it than I am. Awesome. I'm, uh, I'm hundred percent alignment with you. So I, <laughs> it's like the more, the better it's uh it's, it's, it's all additive in the end of the day. So obviously you mentioned before you don't score wines at the Chronicle. I am curious on, do you think that scoring is now passe that it's going, it's, it's less effective because there's so many more voices for it and the scores get lost on it. Do you think that it's only going to be, maintained by a handful of the big mainstream magazines or what are your thoughts on that? I know that you don't do it and it's not your jam and you'd like to tell the story, but I'm curious on anecdotally, what do you think of the, the, the trend of scoring? So anecdotally, I hear from a lot of folks in various, who occupy various stages of the three tier system that scores remain very important, like on the wholesale level that they still really drive scores when distributors and importers are trying to sell wines to restaurant and retail buyers. That's what I hear. So I think like a lot of wine geeks like to sit around and be like, oh, I don't care about scores. But I think in a probably in a the kind of larger scale wine sales in America, they do still play a pretty important role. You know, I think to some extent it's like the form more than the content. It's so hard to figure out a way to present scores to people in a way that matters like for the publication. I mean, obviously you go into wine shops all the time and there's little, um, those little cards, shelf talkers. And I subscribe to various scoring outlets and I look up wine scores in their various databases, but you know, they've mostly got hard paywalls. There's, I, I, I mean, I think it speaks to the kind of larger dilemma of how to talk about wine on the internet, which none of us have figured out yet how to do right, myself included, myself especially. So, you know, I think to some degree, it's like, it's just hard for the score. People aren't like opening the the final third of Wine Spectator and pouring over the tasting notes and the buying guide. Some people are, but I mean, that's not like a major way that people are finding out about wines to drink, right? So. 
Yeah. You know, I, again, I don't, I don't have like data on the wines I write about how they sell, but anecdotally, look, I'm, I'm often, especially in this wine of the week column I've done for the last year, writing about wines that are not super high production, but that I know are available locally in the Bay Area retail. And if I'm recommending a bottle, I always list, you can buy it at Flatiron and K&L and Tofino and XYZ. And almost every time I'm, they're selling out like between the time when the article runs online and when it goes to print. And then I have this mad dash of trying to figure out, oh my gosh, I have to figure out where it's still available. And then I get angry emails from readers all the time that they went to K&L and couldn't find the wine and it was gone. And anyway, so I think people are reading it and buying it based on that. I, I don't, I don't know to what degree. And, you know, so I, I mean, I think people's recommendations still matter. And I think whether it comes in the form of a score or an unscored review or recommendation or someone you trust posting it on Instagram, I don't, I don't think that the hunger for getting those kind of trusted recommendations has gone away. So I am curious because a lot of those those wine magazines have, they, they originally represented the scores as just their magazine scores. And now they've started to really kind of delineate the actual writer who's reviewing because the people change, right? People have left to go do their own thing or switched, switch magazines. And I'm curious how much you feel like the who's writing it matters to people. Like, for example, if someone was to write a review and like your style and post it in the Chronicle, do you think that the readers would care that it wasn't coming from you versus if it is actually coming from you? I think a lot of that would have to do with how the publication has kind of positioned their masthead, their branding, who's doing it. The Chronicles has like makes my name very prominent and says this is Esther Mobley's recommendation, et cetera. And different publications, you know, whether it's just an initial at the end of a score or it's this is presenting Jeb Dunnock. I think a lot has to do with kind of like how the audience has been conditioned to view the person or behind the score or the kind of critical. I mean, you know, I think the advocate always invested a little bit more in building up the personal brands of their individual critics than Wine Spectator did, for instance. I mean, Wine Spectator, absolutely, you see the initials after the score, but I think the the kind of overall brand of wine, this is a Wine Spectator score, is has been positioned a little more prominently. I think if people, you know, if, if people are like, oh, well, I really identify with Lisa Parati Brown's palette, but not with William Kelly's palette. Like it's a pretty specialized group of people who know enough about wine and about right. those, those people to make that decision. I mean, people love, you know, in the wine, in the wine industry, people love to be like, oh, well, I did, you know, I don't think Jim Lobby really gets my style of winemaking. I don't think the average consumer knows the difference between Jim Lobby's palate and Robert Parker's palate and Antonio Galloni's palate. I mean, I don't know. Well, that's, yeah. And that's where the score is like that shorthand to differentiate, right? So even if you don't know the name, the 99 is numerically higher than 95 or 90 or something like that. Right. And there's so much kind of inflation and people think an 88 is like a really bad score now and they freak out and fire the assistant winemaker if they get it or something. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, wine spectator where I used to work was always very clear that like 
how how they actually defined the scores and and you know an eighty whatever you know the high eighties is very good so. Right. If anyone was ever like, oh, that's mediocre, they'd be like, no, 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 that means very good. So since you were at the wines, what are, what are your thoughts on blind tasting to be able to write about a wine? I think if you're going to score a wine on 100 point scale or any numerical scale, I think it's the most, it, I think it is the the way to do it with the most integrity. Absolutely. You, I mean, it's a fallacy to imagine you could ever eliminate subjectivity or bias or personal taste. We all know that, but I think blind tasting is the only way to do that. Really fit. I think it's the most fair way to do that. And I have to say, I worked at wine spectator and I didn't work in the tasting department. I worked in the editorial department, but I was in the tasting department a lot. I saw people tasting a lot. I was always going to the tasting room to taste with the big shot critics there. And they they really do taste blind. They tasted blind, at least I can attest when I worked there. And they take it seriously and they're very skilled tasters and they have a ringer in every flight, a wine they've tasted previously and scored. So they're kind of being tested every time to see how similarly did you score this to the last time. And um, I think if you're going to do it that way, I think they do it the best way they can. I'm like less, I'm less interested in doing it personally. I'm also one person. I mean, Wine Spectator has many tasters and they taste like 20,000 wines a year. I just would never be able to do that physically. So, I mean, when I joined John, before I joined the Chronicle, John Bonnet used to do a top 100 wines of the year. And that took up a lot of his year. And um, we decided that was not really the best ROI for my time, which was a bit of a relief for me. (laughs) I occasionally do blind tasting as a kind of like exercise for myself. I mean, especially like if I were, if I were just writing a kind of general story about, let's say an appellation or grape variety, I might, and I wanted to, to have tasting notes for only a few and couldn't do tasting notes for all of them or whatever. I would do a blind tasting just to test myself and see which ones do I actually think are the best ones and the ones most worth including. And I think getting to how you differentiate between wines and wineries is is a topic that we've always been interested in. And there's so many wineries out there these days, it's hard to stand out. And also wineries tend to use the same story or playbook, right? It's either about terroir if you own the land or the winemaker if you don't, right? So I guess I'm curious, what what do you see as different or what are elements or stories around wineries or wine brands that are interesting to you and, you know, make, make you want to write about them? What really makes me interested, of course, there's a million things that could potentially make me interested in the story. But one thing I'm always seeking out are like, the way I think about it is things that don't totally make sense on their face. Like, things where you're like, hmm, why would someone do that? Or that seems a little counterintuitive. I I absolutely gravitate toward narratives like that. So like early on in my time at the Chronicle, Andy Beckstoffer announces he's about to give away a bunch of grapes for free from his Lake County Vineyard. And this is the guy who sells the most expensive grapes in Napa. And okay, obviously it's a publicity stunt, but to me, that's a great premise for a story. Like, why would someone do this? The story I wrote about Renaissance Winery in the Sierra Foothills, I mean, you literally have like a doomsday cult that 
accidentally happens to build a vineyard in these incredible granite soils and create some of the best wines California's ever seen. Like that doesn't make any sense. That's a great story. It can sound a little dry initially, but I think the kind of ongoing land use battles in Napa, to me, those are like a kind of endless fount of of story ideas. There's just constantly this paradox between what some people believe is agricultural preservation, other people think is agricultural destruction. And I mean, that is like, whoa, there's a lot to talk about there. So I, you know, a lot of people want to just tell me about their wine and how it's really good, or they've invested so much into building a special winery or in the vineyard. And it's really hard for me to find a story out of out of that. It's it's hard for me to find a story out of like, oh, this is exactly what you would expect the story to be. So as we talked a little bit about bloggers and influencers before, a lot of people are starting to see some movement in terms of these bloggers or influencers becoming writers for various publications. I know um, Venice just hired someone uh, to cover Washington State Wines. And I'm, I'm curious, if they are burgeoning wine writers, what advice would you give to wine bloggers and wine influencers to help kind of help their storytelling about pertinent topics or things that they do? Like what are some, what's some sage wisdom you can pass down to them? Okay. Number one is read a lot of non-wine writing. Just read good writing. I mean, like subscribe to the New Yorker, subscribe to the Atlantic, subscribe to the New York Times, read good writing. I mean, not all wine writing needs to be long form feature writing, which is what I most love to do but just read other writing. I mean, we're in such an echo chamber here. And I mean, even sometimes when I work with freelancers writing stories for the Chronicle, the amount of kind of knowledge they assume an average reader has is so wild. But if you're only reading about wine on the internet, you, you, you would of course kind of think that way. And that's why wine struggles so much like wine content media. I hate the word content. Sorry. That's why it so struggles to gain a, a bigger audience because like you wouldn't, it, it so much of it just feels inaccessible or jargon. completely unrelevant to you jargon. I mean, I'm just constantly, if I have my editors at the Chronicle are very knowledgeable about food and knowledgeable about wine, but not like living, breathing, dealing with wine, like we all are. And it's such a great gut check to have them read my work because they know as much as like any intelligent Bay Area wine and food lover does about wine. But if they're like, uh, you're going to have to explain what reverse osmosis means or whatever it is, I'm like, good. I'm glad you pointed that out. And let's frame the story in a different way. Let's make this sound like something people will care about. And I, I think what is often um, a pitfall of some wine writers, especially ones who are just starting out, and I, I certainly identify with this myself, there's an impulse to like sound authoritative and sound like you know what you're talking about. And so you want to use some of that jargon. You want to talk about some of the complicated topics. You don't want to have to like spell everything out that you're discussing. And you think that that is like the mark of good writing, but it's really not. It's really can be the mark of alienating writing. And so I'm constantly thinking about like, without totally disrupting the rhythm of my sentences and using too many 
parentheticals, how can I actually like explain a lot of complicated concepts or, or just not talk about the complicated concepts? They're <laughs> often not, they're often not important. So I think that is a very important lesson that I would say one burgeoning wine writer should take to heart. That's a, that's a great one. I, I remember when I was writing my book, which is totally not, it's nonfiction. So it's <laughs> not even anything, but I had to read really good fiction and that would improve my, my writing. So one other related topic is uh, user-generated content like Seller Tracker, Vivino, and they have scores and recommendations and all this sort of thing, or Wine Berserkers. How do you see that playing in the, the wine landscape? Wine Berserkers is its own thing. I don't know. I have no idea how that plays in the landscape. I'm I'm completely fascinated by wine berserkers, and um, I have to not look at it too often because I'll just go down such a rabbit hole. Rabbit and, hole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like if people are like, "What is it?" I'm like, "It's red. It's Reddit for wine, basically." I mean, people use their real names, so and yet I think they're still as candid and like uncensored as people are on Reddit. So. It's so, it's so wild. I don't even understand, but people love, people know so much about wine on wine berserkers. They love wine and they're like, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's by far the most knowledgeable fine wine community on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And then the producers like respond to their scathing comments about the (laughs) latest allocation they just got. I'm like, wow, you're like getting Kevin Hardy to (laughs) write in. But anyway. So not that anyone has uh, ever has any scathing things to say about Kevin Harvey's wines. They're beautiful. <laughs> so, I mean, my basic thought about all the user aggregated stuff is kind of my uh, consistent with everything else I've said, the more the merrier. It's great. I love the kind of impulse toward democratization. I, you know, in, in beer, for instance, that's just like how information is conveyed. Things like untapped and rate beer, those, those occupy a different, place in the craft beer conversation than Cellar Tracker or um, Vivino do in wine. Like, I think they're, they're taken more seriously in beer. Um, so I don't see why that, that can't be the case for wine too. I think to some extent, they're all running up against the same problem we all are, which again, is that no one has figured out how to deal with wine on the internet. I don't think anyone's figured out how to sell wine on the internet. I don't think anyone's figured out how to talk about wine on the internet. I don't think anyone's figured out how to teach people about wine on the internet. I mean, sorry, I'm being too critical. Everyone's doing a great job, but, and Lord knows we're all trying. So early. It's early. I know. Gosh. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, maybe the answer is that there shouldn't be so many wine focused publications. There should just be good publications that invest in wine coverage more as a part of what else they do. I've been a New Yorker subscriber for so many years and I love their stuff and they write pretty much like only terrible things about wine they like hate wine they love to they love to point out the like hypocrisies of the fine wine community or the natural wine community i'm just like wow here we have a collection of some of the world's greatest writers and like no one really is interested in writing about wine what does that say about us i mean there should be great wine writers at every great publication maybe not every publication but anyway food publications don't have wine coverage in a lot of cases food newspaper sections don't have wine coverage in a lot of cases so Anyway, we have a a long way to go. The other thing I'll say about the user aggregated stuff is, again, I'm I'm speaking to this just as an outsider like you guys, but you know, I'm I'm sure that there's some way in which those want to be utilized to 
like predict user behavior, to understand how to sell wine better to people. So maybe they're successful in that sense. Maybe the the true goal is not to, I guess I shouldn't speculate about their their reasonings. But anyway, you know, I think we're going to see them evolve a lot and become more developed technologically. But I also think every every form of wine media on the internet has a long way to go. All right. Well, that's a, that's a good way to wrap up the episode. We do have one last question. So we are curious about what are you most excited about for the wine industry in the coming year? Well, we, so we're really in a moment of total flux in the wine world. Jancis Robinson put it that way to me a year or two ago. She said that was the the way she would describe the current moment in wine. And I, I think it's really true. I feel privileged that I get to be a part of chronicling that. I wouldn't say all of it is exciting, but it's it's interesting. Wildfires are interesting for the wine industry. They really don't know how to deal with them. They don't know how to deal with, not that, not that they should know how to deal with them better than anyone else. We don't know how to make wines in the face of smoke taint. Um, you know, last year, a lot of people in California just didn't make any wine or didn't make any red wine. And maybe you can get away with doing that one year. You can't get away with doing that every year. I think the myriad questions around climate change and how that's going to change what we grow, where we grow, how we make wine. I think there's a lot of interesting, innovative questions coming up there. And that's really exciting to me. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm here for the natural wine debate. I'm not tired of it. And I think it is going to continue to raise a lot of, I'm writing a story about it right now. I think um, it's going to continue to raise a lot of interesting questions as we kind of, I mean, it's, that's, that's maybe not the most accurate way to, I mean, like, it's like, what is wine? That's, that's a question now. Like, is Piquette wine? Is wine in a can wine? Is wine mixed with quince or apples wine? I mean, it's happening. Like, here we go. I think it's all cool. Cannabis wine. It's <laughs> exactly. Is it out? Is it wine if you remove the alcohol? What is a wine seltzer? What is a wine spritzer? Like, these things are all, they're all challenging all the fences and all the boundaries we had established in our minds before. So it's kind of an identity crisis because of a generational change. And, and then seeing how that pans out is most exciting to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not willing to say that that's the most exciting thing. I think there's a lot of exciting things happening, but that's one thing. I really think we're, we're in a moment of, of big change, big flux. And um, as a writer, you couldn't ask for anything more. Well, we look forward to uh, reading your chronicles in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, as, the, as the wine industry kind of define, redefines itself over the coming years. Thank you. Thanks for reading. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.